it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 594, April 22nd, 2019. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is Bart Bouchatz with Programming by Stealth, installment 75 of X. We can have fun today, Bart? I hope so. That is certainly the plan. <laughs> well, it certainly has been fun for a while here. Uh, so um, I do want to remind the audience that we are trying to remember to do chapter marks. So we're going to have one for the end of the explanation of his homework, and then the, which is also known as the beginning of the new material. So keep your ears out for that. If you want to jump ahead or go back to this point, uh, that'll be in there. Yes. Yeah, because we, yeah, we have a few chunks of the show this time. So it'd be nice to be able to jump around as, as you see fit. Yeah. Now, if I remembered right down the time, we'll be all set. <laughs> yes. Um, so you're powered by something special today, as I recall. I am. So I just want to say a big thank you to listener Anna Silicastaway and all around great person Helma um, and, and her husband as well, who I'm sure also contributes. Um, but Helma has this habit of making a large box of coffee appear at my house at random times. Uh, and it, well, you know, we are machines for turning caffeine into code. And so these really are literally <laughs> powered by Helma Coffee. And so I've become, I've finally gone whole hog on, as, as, um, uh, John, um, ah, why can't I think of John from doing Fireball's actual name? Gruber. Jeez. I need more coffee, clearly. As John Gruber would say, I've finally gone all the way on fussy coffee. I now grind my own. So I now have whole beans roasted in an artisanal coffee roasting place in Maastricht. So I am... Oh, la-di-da. Yeah, it's really good coffee. Like, I mean, it, it was always good, but now that it's whole bean until about 10 minutes ago... It, wow. Oh, it smells so good, too. Grinding your own coffee makes the house smell amazing. Well, that's the thing. I wish coffee tasted as good as it smelled when you're grinding it. That's the best <laughs> coffee is. I mean, I still like coffee, but the best it is is the smell of it being ground. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, so thank you, Helma, for continuing to, to power me with really, really tasty coffee. It's... Yay, Helma! Yes, exactly. Okay, so today we are actually going to get to do some Ajax, uh, having spent the whole of last and so on. I think we joked about this, that there was no actual programming in Programming by Stealth, episode 75. It was entirely about how HTTP works. But now that we know how it works, we should be able to get some programming done this time but oh and we wanted to to point out to people if you want to tell somebody hey you want to understand http that's a an anthology type episode right that one can just stand alone you don't need anything before it to uh to understand it yeah it has no dependencies yeah you're right um we're depending on it going forward but yeah you're right you can listen to that entirely on its own it would make perfect sense apart from the fact that the intro would like 76 of jesus i'm a bit behind but other than that <laughs> So we, I'm going to go through, so I did my homework twice because I got completely carried away the first time I did my homework. I went completely over the top. Uh, I just kept on programming until it looked perfect. And then I went to try to write it up as show notes. And I was like, yeah, this isn't, this is a solution to a problem. It's not a solution to the one you wrote. <laughs> so I rewound a little bit. And uh, so there are two sample solutions in the zip file for this installment. There's one called basic.html, which is actually what I asked for. So I basically went back and re-read. It's like, what did I actually ask people to do? It's like, oh, that's what I asked. Okay. And then there's one where I just got carried away, which is the advanced one. Um, yeah. So that's why we're going to do the basic homework, then the new stuff, and then we're going to circle back to the advanced homework, as it were. Okay. But before we do any of that, I actually want to do a little call out. So... Y 
it, this isn't just come up with yourself. This come up with yourself and uh, was it yourself and Dorothy? Um, mm-hmm. So I just want to do a sort of a quick note on the strain on the relationship, I guess, between the bootstrap grid and the bootstrap flex utilities. So yeah. Can I explain what I'll set it up a little bit was both uh, both bootstrap, both Dorothy and I were confused in mixing up bootstrap utility classes and um, what's the other one and the bootstrap grid that they can't actually be mixed together quite in the way uh, that they uh, that we were doing them. Mm. And the thing that was driving me crazy was I really was a ninja at this whole row, column, call three, call six. I Man, I was all over that when we learned it. And yet when I tried to do it in this example, I couldn't get anything to work right. I mean, I, it would basically I would change things and nothing would change. It's like I, that was a call three and now it's a call six. That should look different. I should be able to see it. Why isn't it working? And finally, I sent you a note about something in your, and you taught me something I didn't realize. So now I will let you continue with that. Yeah. So as with so many things, you know, so Bootstrap has many components and they are separate things. So if you go to the Bootstrap documentation 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 page <laughs> about the grid, it will give you all of the Bootstrap grid classes. And if you go to the Bootstrap documentation page about their flex utilities, it will give you all the flex utility classes. And they're both part of Bootstrap. But it doesn't mean that you can take one div and give it the class call from the grid menu and give it the class justify content around from the flex menu because that is that is meaning like that is trying to to make it be two things at once and it can't be it can, it can't be in a superposition it is either you know justify content around makes it into a flex container uh, and call makes it into a call within the grid which is technically a flex item deep down under the hood and it cannot be both and so while i can't tell you what will happen i can tell you it will be unpredictable <laughs> and often nothing at all which is an unpredictable behavior so yeah. sort of the, the way to think of it, so the grid's job is to lay out the big pieces. And so you have a container, contains arbitrarily many rows, and each row contains arbitrarily many calls. And then a flex box is a whole different kettle of fish. So you would start with a div and you would give it the bootstrap utility class d-flex. And that enables that div as a flex container. And once you've done the d-flex, then you can use all the other flex utilities like justify content around but the d-flex flex is like the on switch that says you are now in flex mode and then all the cool flexy stuff will work on it and so by giving something a call you're saying you're supposed to be a part of the grid and so you can't do both at once there is one place where the two universes meet though and that's at the row level because actually if you if you view source if you if you actually open up the css file for bootstrap and you look and you see, okay, so what? what is the def... If I look at the class d-flex, what's happening? Well, it's one of the entries in there will be display colon flex, which is the raw CSS way of turning on flex. So d-flex is just a shortcut for that. But if you go look under the hood of row, you'll see that row also has display colon flex because actually a row is a flex container, which means that the flex utilities can be applied to a row. But that's the only point in the grid where the two universes meet. 
Now, that turned out to be handy because that's exactly what I wanted, was I wanted to be able to say, okay, I'm going to put these three blocks in or two blocks in, and one's going to be three wide and one's going to be six wide, but I want the content justified around. Yes. was exactly what I wanted to do, and it turned out if I put that on the row, then the calls could be call three and call six, and they all laid out just exactly like I wanted. Yeah. And that's not something we've really done before, because generally speaking, when you're using the grid, you actually want a full grid. And when you say justify content around, you're literally, none of the grid lines are lined up anymore in that row, right? None of the grid lines are lined up. Because we normally think of the grid as being uh, like drawing paper from school with 12 penciled in grids. Oh, (laughs) okay. Your columns normally snap to one of those 12 penciled in grid lines, right? But when you say justify content around, you've just got... That row has now gone all floaty, right? You're off, you're off grid. So it's not how you would normally use the grid, but it's completely valid and actually documented as explicitly something you can do if you wish to. Well, if you had uh, something that was uh, call three and another another call six, mm-hmm. so it only adds up to nine, you got three slots left. Yes. How would you, well, let's pick it, let's pick it three and, and four Wait. Well, see, if three it, okay, and five. So three is a good example because I would gen- if if I had three left over, I would say offset one. I'd have an uh, an offset of one because you can offset your column. Stop! 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 You didn't let me ask the question, and you're answering it. So I want to make sure the question is out there: is what typing do I do to make something move over by those three? Um, you would go do to I make an empty column of three? Bear with me. We'll do this in real time. I don't remember them. Okay. If I if you ask me off the top of my head, I get it wrong because I'm a programmer. I know how to read docs. I don't learn stuff. Um, so okay. I so I don't know what to look up. I go to layout. I go to grid. Now wait, wait, wait. How do you know to go to layout? Well, we're, we're, because that's where the grid is hidden. So that's what that's what we get from practice. We know where in the docs to go. That's that's the only thing we really learn. So this made I did I, I read and read and read and read and read every RTFM I could find, and I could not find the answer to this question. Okay, so now the grid. So now you're in the grid, and then in the menu that for some. And I've read this page. Pardon? I've read this page. One of three columns. One of three columns. One of three columns. I've looked at this. So what is it you want me to look up? Was it offsetting, or was it the way you ended up? You used that word, and that word didn't occur to me. Let's say I want there to be two empty calls to the left and one empty call on the right. Um, Okay, so we don't want that. We don't want that. Responsive class. Equal width. We got. Setting one column width. And what are you ordering? Variable columns. width content? There it is. Offsetting columns. Is it... So it's offset Boy, dash. that word never would have occurred to me. 37 matches, but I'm not finding it. Okay, there we go. Ah, so offset dash mid dash something. Or just offset dash something if you want the offset to always apply. So okay. offset dash two will jump it over by two. Offset dash one will jump it over by one. So okay. if you have exactly three left over and you have two things that you want to distribute, then off, then you can do it with offsets. So that way you could keep within your 12 grid lines. But if you had 11 items, then the only way to do it is to say sod the grid, justify content around, right? Because yeah. it doesn't divide. Now 12 it's is great because it divides grid, so yeah. many different ways, which is why it's... Yeah, it is a good choice. Here's a great example of where this page is long, and I read a lot of it, but I never thought of the word offset. 
So because I didn't think of offset, reading the manual didn't help me. Yes. I didn't you, find yeah. it. So what you get from practice is knowing how to find what you need in the manual. So you know that it, you know it's possible because you've done it once. So it's in the back of your mind as something vaguely possible. And so the skill you're learning is how to look it up as opposed to what the answer is. Well, I'm pretty good at looking stuff up, but it's terminology that always throws me. It seems to throw me. This isn't anything you can fix. I'm just saying why I never found it, because I absolutely was on this page, and I read and read and read and couldn't find it. Yeah. It's a very, very long page. Yeah, and so the, 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 what, what you get from practice, right, because you can't escape the 10,000 hours. But what you're getting from the 10,000 hours is not an, an encyclopedic knowledge of every tag that exists. It's what you get is a familiarity with what's possible and the correct jargon. Yeah. An arm yeah. Jargon. Or maybe I, I've, I've used this language and this is what they called it. What was a synonym for that? What else could it be? Yeah. Yeah. And so for I got excited like, when I found gutters, but that wasn't it. That was a top and bottom stuff. Yeah. So for something like Bootstrap, they will have an official jargon, right? So the Bootstrap documentation mm-hmm. will be ruthlessly consistent. And so they have a jargon that they use as a project. So what you'll become familiar with over time is their jargon. Where things get much more difficult to Google is when you're just doing generic JavaScript stuff because there's no there's no one setting down the law of thou shalt everyone who programs in Java shall speak in this language, right? Oh, okay. So that's more difficult. Whereas at least with something like Bootstrap, once you get into their way of thinking, you you now speak Bootstrap, so you should find it much easier. But a very generic question can actually be the most difficult thing to get an answer to. And the chances are the internet's full of answers. But darn <laughs> right, if you right. can get your thinking to align with someone else's way of describing the problem. More often than not, you can find it, but uh, sometimes. Okay, I shouldn't take too much time on this, but I like your explanation of, of separating those two. When I, when I first asked Bart about this, and I didn't know what the problem was, and he said, well, these are two alien species. They can't talk to each other. I'm like, what? I didn't even know they were two different things. And then uh, I said, you never told us this. And he said, you know what? It's going to be really hard for me to tell you everything that isn't going to work. <laughs> you know, or, you know, but because there's an infinity we'll, of we'll, solutions to our challenges, but there's a bigger infinity of things that won't work. <laughs> and I will find them. <laughs> Was it Edison who said, you know, I haven't failed. I've merely found 10,000 ways that don't work. <laughs> right. <laughs> So anyway, with all of that said, let's get stuck into the challenge solution. So what I had given you was a, a an HTML page as a starting point. Um, it had some boilerplate in it. It had a script tag with a type of application slash JSON or text slash JSON or something like that at the top, which contained a bunch of data um, in JSON format, mm-hmm. which you could then read in and use. And that data was the information that needed to be presented in a pretty way within the web page. And it was contact information for yourself and myself. And the challenge was basically for you to update the page or fill out the page so that it read the data from that JSON uh, string and used mustache templates to make it pretty on the page. And I did stipulate that you had to use flex utilities. That was basically the challenge. Right. So the first thing I did before I really got stuck in is just to say I, I tweaked the text of the Jumbotron so it didn't say challenge starting point, so it said something sensible, but that's not really much to that. And then the next thing I did was find a place into which I could start injecting what I what I decided to call contact cards. So I'm sort of the lingo I've used in my brain, and hence in the show notes, is that these are little contact cards, one for me and one for Alison. So I wanted. Okay, so that was the div class equals row ID contact cards inside a div container. 
precisely. So I created a div that we're going to use, contact underscore cards is the ID, and I decided to make it a row in a bootstrap grid. So what that means is that each contact card is going to have to be a call because it's inside a row. Right. So I think last time I gave sort of a, a suggestion of sort of the workflow I would suggest in general for these kind of things. Step one, have a read through the available data so you know what exists. Step two, write your template and just make the template work sensibly. Step three, figure out how to build a view to match the template you've just created. And so that's what I'm going yeah, to do here. That's an interesting way to do it because you say build uh, when you build the template, you can't actually tell whether it works until you build the view. Yes. So you sort Just, of do a first draft. Does it make draft. sense to you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be a first draft, right? Because then, then you'll have a first version that works and then you go, oh, we need, to, you know, a little more padding here, a little bit of margin there. Oh, yeah, okay, that doesn't work at that break point. I'm going to tweak that to a call 11, whatever. But your very first pass of it, it's better to write from the template first because then you're going to know what shape the view object needs to take. Yeah. And then you can write the Now, one other thing I did... I'm sorry. One other thing I did was I assumed in the real world, if I'm really going to pull some JSON data, I don't want to be in a position of changing that JSON data because my assumption was this is going to be something where I'm going to be pulling this every day, every hour, every year, whatever, Mm. from a website where you don't want to be in fussing around with the data. Yes. You want to use the data and pull it and then mess with it, not change it in the JSON. Precisely, because in the real world, it's probably not something you actually could edit. In this case, it was just written at the top of the file. But in the real world, you're probably calling a web service that someone else has written. You know, so within an organization, you probably have different groups. And so you'll often use JSON to pass information from, you know, the student record system to the virtual learning environment or something, at which point you have Mm -hmm. no control over how the the stuff comes out of the student record system. You just have to transform it into a, a form that makes sense to you. So right. yeah, you're you're exactly right. So changing the JSON was not the thing to do. The thing to do is to load the JSON and then use it as the source to build view objects. Right. Okay, so I wrote up my template and I kept it fairly straightforward. Um, I decided to use a nav as my containing div because of all the semantic tags. To me, a contact card is a form of navigation, right? It's how to get to my Twitter, how to get to my... Well, I don't have a Facebook. But, how, you know, how to get to my various different contact methods. So to me, the nav seemed like the sensible starting point. Um, so I said nav class equals call dash 12. So obviously I had, they had to be calls. I decided, oh yeah, just to say, I also followed bootstrap standard advice, make it work on the narrowest of breakpoints first, and then make it look good at the wider breakpoints. So for my first pass, it's just, I'm only thinking mobile here. Just get it working on mobile, get to my first working version, and then, you know, iteration two, three, four, we start to make it work elsewhere. So I figure on a phone screen, there's only one way this is going to work. Each contact method is going to have to be a separate row. So I went. With, I basically went with full width contact card, so call dash 12. Okay. Margin bottom three, padding two, MB3, P2. That's somewhat arbitrary. Just, you know, something sensible so it doesn't all bang into each other. Um, then I decided that each of my contact card should contain exactly two top-level items, a header and then a flex box containing the contact methods. So semantically speaking, the header should be a first level heading inside that nav. So H1 contact and then the mustache name dot first. 
Um, but I didn't want it to be giant, so I used Bootstrap's wonderful utility classes to make the H1 tag render like an H5. So H1 class equals oh, H5. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Did we ever learn that? We You probably did, taught us yes. That. When we looked at the utility classes, we passed by, but... I was probably excited about it last time too, but one one of the things uh, Bart is giving me a hard time for is that my website always starts at H3. And the reason is because when I first set up the website, like 72 years ago, H1 was too big and I didn't know anything about CSS. So I didn't know I could go in and change what H1 looked like. So H3 looked good and that's what it's been ever since. And now, uh, you know, 14 years later, it's just going to be that way forever. Right. But this would have given me the way to make the class be smaller, and yet the heading, the semantic heading for screen readers in particular would be really nice if they made sense. Yes, and SEO as well, if you were to care about such things, then the heading order is important for SEO. But it helps assistive devices massively because assistive devices really like to... The, the semantics are what matter to an assistive device. So getting your semantics right helps assistive devices enormously. Yeah, you can tell I'm big into SEO. I named my my uh, website after my feet and my my podcast is my name spelled backwards. It's almost like my goal was to never be found. <laughs> yes. So okay, so that's that's going to be your contact, and you've got a mustache that says uh, named out first. Yeah. So contact Bart, contact Allison, basically. Um, then we okay. have our div class equals d dash flex. So d dash flex is the enable flex box. So this div is going to be a flex box or a flex container because it has the class d dash flex. So you can put a fl- uh, flex container inside of uh, the Bootstrap grid. Yeah. So once you're inside a call, think of it as being a fresh universe, right? So the call gives okay. you a box into which you can put any HTML you like. Okay, 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 I got you. And remember, right. you can put another container inside a call to have nested grids. You can have a grid within a grid within a grid within a grid. So each call right. really is a little micro-universe where you can do anything. So you can put a table in there, you can put an image in there, you can put a whole other grid in there. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so bleh, where have I gone? So d-flex makes it into a flex container. So every item in that flex container will be a flex item. You don't have to give it a class. The way flex works is if you are a top level child of a flex container, you are a flex item. That is by the rules, you don't make something a flex item. It is one by being a top level child of a flex container, which is a lot more modern than a lot of stuff CSS is. But anyway, because that's probably because flex was only added recently. Um, We'll come back to the flex dash column in a moment. Actually, no. Um, So by default, flex boxes go across. So you're used to seeing those like, say, on podfeet.com. Uh, a flex is almost certainly used to display your icons for each podcast in a nice row next to each other. Unless you're on an iPhone, in which case they're vertical. Yeah, so how does that done, I wonder? Well, the answer to that is that flex boxes can go sideways or up and down, but not back in time. Um, mm-hmm. And the way you make them go up and down is with flex dash column. So it basically stacks right. them vertically as opposed to horizontally. And so since we're doing mobile first, I figured let's start them off flex dash column. Okay. So then I have a boots, not a bootstrap, a mustache loop over something called contact methods. Because that seemed like a good name for the contact methods. And so for each... Now, con- I noticed it's, uh, you taught us to, the, the loop was to put the uh, octothorpe and then the mustache name, and then you close it out with slash and then contact methods in this case, but you've got a space between those. Um, yes. Is there supposed to be a space? 
There was in all the ducks I've done, yeah. I, it probably works without. Oh. Um, yeah, it definitely does work without, because I've done it without. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, my notes have always had a space in there, but clearly it works both ways, because your I'm code observant. is very pretty, and I really like your um, your little badges you added in of your own accord. Oh, thank you. It's very, very pretty. Uh, so inside each one, we just have a div, class equals p-1, so just give it a padding of one so they're not banging into each other. And then in there, we have a span which contains the icon, the font awesome icon, and a span which contains the actual text of the contact method, which I've just called value. So because I said you must use partials, I decided to use a partial for my icon. So the span for the icon contains a mustache that's open curly, open curly, arrow, and then icon, which is the name I, I'm giving the partial that doesn't exist yet. Okay. Uh, now, yeah, I want to see how you got in there. Pardon? I'm stuck. I'm stuck on that part, so I'm, I'll be curious to see how you did that. Okay, well then, it, we will be there very, very shortly. Um, <laughs> just before we get there, I wrapped the icon inside another span, which I gave the class d-inline-block, and then I explicitly said style equals width colon 1.5 em. So what's all that about? Yeah. So you discovered... Um, before me, because you posted about it in the, in the wonderful Slack group, that all of the icons in Font Awesome, as awesome as they are, are not all exactly the same width. So if you just include the icons and then you stack everything vertically, it won't, the start of the texty bit that comes out of the icon won't just line up magically. Uh, and so there's many different ways of tackling that problem. Um, one way to tackle it is to turn it into a list and then Font Awesome actually has special Font Awesome CSS classes for using the icons as effectively the bullets on a bulleted list and then they'll line up perfectly. Or the way I chose to do it instead was to wrap the icon inside this span with this d-inline-block and this width of 1.5 em. So an inline block behaves like an image, which means it has a width property Right, so a span doesn't have a width because a span is normally inline. So an inline item is the width of the text. But an inline block item does have a width. So by making it an inline block, I was then able to say width equals 1.5 em. So in other words, <laughs> this will be exactly one and a half characters wide, which is perfect because it leaves a nice little space after the icon and it'll be exactly the same overall width. Therefore, everything will line up. Ah, yeah, Dorothy did the uh, the bullet method, and as soon as she said that, I was like, oh, man, that made everything work easily. That was great. Yeah, that, But the, this is cool, different way. Yeah, they're both valid, and because I knew you were going one way, I decided to go the other. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it just seemed like a good way to, you know, to cover both avenues. Um, so the next thing, then, is the partial. So I've said I'm going to have this partial. So what does my partial look like? Well, the next code snippet is the JavaScript for my icon partial. So const partials equals start a new object containing oh, one key. I'm, hang on, back up just a second. Okay. So uh, we talked all about the span that you that you put the icon in, but then after that you have span uh, mustache value. What is value going to be? It's going to be the, the actual value for the contact item. So that would be alison at podfeet.com for the email item, uh, the contact method, um, podfeet. Oh, so how do you the, know that that's going to be the the icons or the... Well, I'm deciding right now, right? So I'm writing my template first. So I am deciding that that is what it means. And then I will okay, write so my Okay, so value view. isn't, it doesn't include the icons. It's the, 
it's whatever you're going to tell it to. Hmm. Right, I'm writing the template first. So this is basically defining the names everything will have within my view objects. So I'm making these names up as I okay. go along. So I, I'd say... Oh, I'm sorry. This is, this is inside the contact methods loop. Yes. I, I, the color coding is weird, so I kept missing that thinking it was a comment. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. It's, Caught up. It basically, the mustache has really, really confused the HTML. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's almost like it's a random number generated the way it colors it right now, isn't it? Yeah, no, yeah, because it's not mustache aware. So what's actually got it wrong is the angle bracket inside the mustache to include the partial. That's where it, that that has it completely confused. That's where it all goes horribly wrong. Yeah. Okay, so the partial then is you know partial. The parcels are just an object, and the index is in the object. So the keys in the object are the names you use inside your mustache. So the name I used in my mustache was icon. So it says icon colon and then a string. And the string in my case is, but what it is exactly is the string for a font awesome icon that is supporting accessibility. So I went and RTFM'd over on the uh, font awesome website to double check what they said to do for accessibility. And they said that if the icon carries meaning, if it's not purely decorative, then you should add a screen reader only uh, thing after it. So basically... The I is the icon, and it gets its font awesome icons. But then it also has aria-hidden equals true, so the screen reader won't see the icon. But straight after it, it says span class equals s or dash only. And so that's going to have... That's going to only be visible to the screen reader. And so what we have there then is mustaches for icon.classes and icon.title. So the classes will be... Where did, where did those come from? I made them up, right? I, I am writing template first. So I am inventing these. I am basically telling my future self, when you're writing the view, you must provide icon.classes and icon.title. So what is an, in your invention, in your head, mm -hmm. what is an icon.classes? It's the FA FA-Twitter. It's the, it's, the it's the font awesome classes for the icon. Uh, okay, okay. And the title is gotcha. the text that I want to use instead for the screen okay. reader people. Okay. So All that'll right. be Twitter, email. Right. Because what else can I say? Okay. I mean, that's what the icon is, right? So the Twitter icon is Twitter, so the text should be yeah. Twitter. Okay. Uh, All right. Yes. So with all of that done... What I have actually done implicitly by writing my template like this is I have defined what what must be the view. And so what I've actually done is I've written as a piece of code here for you to see the actual implied structure that my template means we must create. So each object mm. in the view must contain something called name, which must be an object which must contain the key first. It can contain other stuff too, but it must be name dot first must exist. So name containing first has to exist. Okay. Contact methods has to exist and has to be an array so I can loop over it. And for each of those, so that must be an array of objects. So for each object in that array, it must be an object of the form name, which is going to be the name of the contact method, e dot g Twitter. Value, okay. the value of the contact method, e dot g podfeed. It must contain an icon, which must be an object, which must contain classes, which is e.g. fab dash, sorry, fab space fa dash Twitter. Okay. And it must contain a title, e.g. Twitter. 
Oh, this really helps to see this, to see what what you've what you have in your head that you've done. This is sort of hard because you've got to do one thing before the other. They can't both coexist. Yeah, this is the realization that came to me while I was out on the bikes. Like, why did our first attempt at recording this go so badly? And it's like, because the structure that I implied was implied. Why don't we make it explicit? Yeah, you just you just pull back the curtain. No, if the people listening aren't listening to the No Silicast, they didn't know we're recording a second time. This is all new to them. But you told everyone else on the other show. I assumed it wasn't secret. <laughs> yeah, this is our second attempt. The first one is in the can and will never be heard. Yeah, the trash can, not anybody. the film can. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, okay, so this helps. So you've got a... a and now what you've got to do is dive into the JSON and cause it to create this. Precisely. So step two, okay. build a view object. So this is now what I'm trying to achieve. And then it becomes yeah. much easier to understand my JavaScript code because that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. So the key okay. here, if you'll excuse the terrible pun on the word key. Um, so the key here, we need to be able to loop over objects in the JSON. So if you look at the JSON, it contains... An ob it contains an object called people, which has a key Allison and a key Bart. So if I want to loop over all of the people, I need to find a way of getting Allison and Bart. And so the way to pull out the keys of an object is the wonderfully named object.keys. So we need to use object.keys to pull those out of that data structure. Right. Um, the other thing I should say to people to help for anyone who wants to experiment with this and sort of follow along, I intentionally put my data variable into the global scope so you can use the console to actually query the result of parsing that JSON string. Ah, so that's where I always get stuck. I I try really often to use uh, the JavaScript console to find out what do, what do you think this variable is right now? Because you're obviously not doing what I think you're supposed to be doing. And the answer is always, I don't know what you're talking about. There's no such variable. So always, always, by always. having it exist in the global scope. So I'm not saying const data here. I'm just saying data because I defined it outside the document ready handler. Okay, so that's not on screen where I'm looking right now. It's not that on the is snippet yet. Seriously, it's somewhere else. Handler. It just says var data equals empty object. Okay. Var, not let? Var, because it's a global variable. So var, be, yeah. Mm -hmm. So the nice thing about let is that it's scoped within, curly, within the curly brackets, but I don't want it to be contained within curly brackets. So I'm going with the old-fashioned global universal var. Okay. Um, so yeah, so it's outside of everything. It's sitting at the very, very, very top level. It just says var data equals curly curly, which is basically an empty object. And then I can just say data equals or becomes equal to json.pars and then we pull it in. So that means that you can actually open up the, the console and type data and hit enter and it will log the full object. Or you can see that if you say data.people, you'll see it comes out with Allison and Bart. And if you say data.people.allison, then you'll see it pulls out just that object. And then you can say data.people.allison.name.first, and you'd see it say Allison. And so you can explore the object that way. So whenever you see something in, in the code here that looks a bit weird to you, you can pop into the console and start to break it down. So you could, for example, in the console, put object.keys.data.people, and you should see that returns to you Allison and Bart. Okay. 
so that will basically that will help you to, to sort of to see the pieces come together. So I make use of object.keys to get an array, Alison, comma Bart. And I also use the sort function that's provided by JavaScript to sort it because it's just I just whenever I'm looping over something, I like to have it be alphabetically ordered. I don't like randomness. So in this case, they happen to be the right way around inside the JSON file. But, you know, if in the real world there were 10 people instead of two, the chances of them being properly sorted are very slim. So I'll I'll always sort stuff because it just makes you feel better. So what we're basically doing is we're looping, we're saying, give me all the people. So I'm building, I'm not building two separate view objects. I'm building an array of view objects. So I'm going to have my, my two views sitting in one array, which I am calling people. And, okay. and that way I can use a for loop later to draw both contact cards within one loop. So I'm using a loop to build my two objects, and then I'll use a loop later to render both of my objects. So so this array of people, this is where Dorothy did what you did, but I studied and never succeeded at this mm-hmm. uh, looping thing. I did mine hard-coded, but um, you've got a, this array of people. Yes. But that doesn't contain these contact icons. So I'll be not curious yet. to see how you go get the co- contact icons because they're not in there. They're separate. The people don't have their contact icons. The, they're, they're separate. Right. So on line 11 here, I am making a new array that I am calling people. So not data. Right? Data.people is the people property inside the data object. People is just a new array I've just built. It contains absolutely nothing. Uh, okay. Right. Const people becomes equal to empty array. Oh, I thought okay. Right. I thought that was the people in the JSON because that's what that's what it's called in there, right? Not person. It's people. Yeah, but that that's right? data dot people. Okay. It's not people. It's data dot people. It's an, okay. Right. It doesn't say data dot people. It just says people. Okay, but how do we know it's inside data? Well, because we say data becomes equal to JSON dot parse. Okay, so data equals json.parse, the stuff in the view data dot text. Okay, so we, we grabbed we grabbed that uh uh the JSON, yeah. we parsed it into text. And that's what data is. So data uh, yeah, so da- we parsed it from text. So data is that from object. text. Okay. So we got that data, that's all the data that's in there. We got that. But yeah. then you say const people equals open close square brackets. Yeah. How is that data dot people? It's that's not data people. dot people, is what I'm saying. It's 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 people. Const people is just people. Oh, you're saying data is the data dot people is the one in the JSON and people is something that has nothing in it yet. Bingo. That's it exactly. Right? Okay. I've just created people with the intention of populating it. Because I got to have somewhere to put them, okay. right? I'm, I'm about to use a loop here to make to, to make as many people as there are in that d- JSON object. So I got to have a okay. place to stack them as I build them. Okay, so that can hold that can hold the same stuff that people has in it, but it can also hold like the icons and such. Yeah, exactly. So in fact, we're going to start we're okay. going to start empty and only take what we need. So inside okay. the for loop, the first thing I say is const person becomes equal to, and I start a new object. And I give that object just two keys, name and contact methods. Okay. Name, I can just populate straight away. I don't have any more work to do. I can say data.people, open square bracket, uname.name. So that needs a little bit of picking. What is you, what is you name? Yeah. 
So on line 12, we, we do our loop, right? We define our for of loop. That's the other thing I'd meant to say. So object.keys gives us an array and for of lets us loop over an array. So the first time we go through that array, you name is Allison. The second time we okay. go through that loop, you name will be Bart. Okay. So that's by the definition of how a for of loop works, right? You're saying... Right. How did constant you constant you name become Allison or Bart? It's because you did a, um four because you were your four of object dot keys data dot people. So data dot people is Allison and Bart. So the first the first time you go through, it's saying the uh, the first thing you get shove that into you name, and that's going to be Allison the first time through. Precisely, and the second time through okay. will be Bart. Yeah. So you're okay. looping. So const person would become it says name colon name data.people you name dot name so since we know people you name is data.people you name is allison dot name turns returns allison well it returns wow. the object first allison surname sheridan we're not actually going to use the surname but we take both right because if you look in the raw json if you say people that oh so it's got both it's got first allison last sheridan yeah so so okay. will this right because we're saying give me whatever okay. whatever his name Okay. So we now shove that in. So person name taken care of. And then we say contact methods becomes equal to empty array. Okay, well, we hmm. we have a start, right? We know what we need to end up with if we scroll back up. We need to end up with the name, and then we need to end up with the contact methods, which has to be an array. So now we've got to fill those contact methods. So we have a name and we have an empty array of contact methods. So now we need another loop. We need to loop over each contact method. So if and this you, is a loop within the first loop. It's a loop within the first loop. So if I look inside okay. people.allison, you'll see that there's, a, there's an object called contact, which contains the key email with the value your email address. It contains the key URL with the value your URL. It contains the key Twitter with the value podfeed. It contains the key Slack with your Slack. Okay, okay. So we need to loop over those keys too to build, okay. to build an entry in our contact methods array for each of those. One entry for email, one entry for URL, one entry for Twitter, one entry for Slack, etc. So it's another for of loop. So again, we say const contact name of object.keys data.people uname.contact. So if you follow it all the way in, that's going to give us the array email, URL, Twitter, Slack, Facebook. Hmm. So you say. Okay. Well, you can copy and paste all this kind of stuff into the console if you don't believe. Oh, I'm not saying it it won't work. Yeah. We're deep in the rabbit hole, right? You got to you okay. got to keep following cuz it's it's objects all the way down, right? You have an object that contains <laughs> yeah. an object that contains Right. You just got to keep the okay. data structure. So, through our loop we're going to say um just to make my life easier, I just suck the value straight out of the uh, out of the giant big data structure. So I say const contact val becomes equal to data dot people uname dot contact contact name. <laughs> so the first time through the loop, contact val will be whatever the value is of email. So it'll be the so const val the first time through will be Alison at podfeet dot com, and the second time through it'll be the value for the next one, which is your podfeet URL. Okay. So contact right. val is the value that goes opposite the key. Okay. I just have it there so that it's easy to access because now we've got to build an object for to represent the current contact method. 
And in my saying of what I wanted to build, I said that each object had to have name, value, and icon. So name becomes equal to contact name. Value becomes equal to contact val. Icon becomes equal to an object containing classes and title. The title is the contact name again. And the classes we pull out of data.contactIcons, contact name. Now, hang on. Hang on, big boy, for a minute there. That's right. We're, so the contact icons, how are you getting to those data.contactIcons? So... So contact icons. The class is the con- contact icons are not specific to the contact name. Correct. But I, okay, but no. So okay, why so what are, are the keys the of contact, contact name? icons? What, what are the keys of contact icons? They are the word email and, and mm-hmm. the word Facebook, the word Flickr. Okay, and so what are the keys inside the contact objects inside Allison? They're the same. Yes. So, contact name, the first time through the loop, is email. Does data.contactitems.email exist? Yes, it does, and it has exactly the value we need. Hmm. Data.contactitems email will give you the icon for email. Data.contactitems Twitter will give you the icons for Twitter. So this wouldn't work at all if in contact icons this JSON file had capital email. Correct. But it was it's not an accident that they're the same because contact icons is a lookup for the different contact methods. Hmm. So they were they're the same because they need to be the same. Because how else can you okay. connect the information together? It seems like cheating that you got to go in there without doing more work than that. But no, it's not <laughs> cheating. Going. It's, Keep going. That's the point of a lookup table is to let you look things up. Right, but it's a lookup table that I don't see how we're really getting into because we're down inside people, but contact icons aren't inside the people. Right, but Twitter but is. People have contact, and within contact is Twitter, so then you're able to somehow leap out of the only thing we have, which is people, and you're over here in this parallel thing, contact icons. Yeah. Data.contact items. Data is available to you. Data is a variable that you have access to. It contains a key contact items, which contains a key email. So there you go. Data.contact items, contact icons, contact name. And why and contact names was what again? So the con- so the first time through the loop contact is that name Allison is email. No, no. So their name value pairs, right? So contact name is email. Contact method name, if that helps. So the yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So we've now built huh. our little object. So now we say people dot push the person we've just built up. Okay. So what you'll see now is two commented out lines of code that weren't there last time we did this. So if you want to see what we've just built on the console, uncomment line 30. If you want to see what we've just built as a pop-up, uncomment line 31. Hmm. And then you can see the actual content of this new people array I've just built. And you'll see that it contains what I said it should. That'll be interesting to do. I th- I'll do that offline because yes. we're... Yeah. But as I'm saying, so I've put that there explicitly so that if anyone wants to go through this code, you can use the console to query data yourself. So you can say data.people.allison.contact.twitter. 
And you can follow it all the way down the rabbit hole because I've made sure everything's in the global scope for you. And I've put these two lines here so you can actually see visually the outcome of those two for loops inside each other. And so you may, you know, I, I can't fast forward the study process, but I've given you all the tools that I can think of to give you so that you can study what's going on. Okay. Should I be able to copy that line console.log, generate a view objects, comma, comma people and put it in the console and no, have it work? No, you need to uncomment it and just hit refresh. Why can't you? Because it, the people object... Because it's not in the global spo- scope. Yeah, in line 11. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Got you. Okay. So I have to say, so I'm sort of leaving that there to give anyone who wants to dig into this and to really understand this, because this is short in terms of number of lines of code. But because we're using loops inside loops, there's a lot happening here quite often. Yeah. You know, so... Okay. What we do know, though, is at the end of this loop inside a loop, the people contains an object for me and an object for you. So then the next thing we have is render the contact so we can simply, again, use another for loop to go mustache.render given our template, our view, and our partials. Cool. And so if you do that, we can finally see what it looks like. So if you now actually open, if you now actually open the thing, you can actually see what we have. Um, and I've managed to lose my own place, so I can't see what I have. I have your sample solution, which is very pretty, but it's not mine. <laughs> okay, I can see it. Looks good. So we have vertically stacked. And I stacked. can change the width. We have our icons. Vertically. So... As we widen it out, this isn't great yet as the code stands right now at the second. So the next thing to do is to make this start to work at other breakpoints. So to do that is actually not that difficult. So the first thing we want is to go side by side at the large breakpoint. So all I have to do in my nav is add cull-lg-6. Hey, presto, now they've gone side by side for the large, and that's an awful lot better. And then the yeah. last thing I decided I wanted to do as part of my standard solution is I found it really frustrating that your Facebook link and my Stack Overflow link and your URL and my URL, they are clearly URLs. But you can't click on them in my solution. I've looped over them so I have the identical code rendering each one. And that code doesn't contain a link because... There's no logical thing to link to for Twitter as it stands right now. So I, I, you know, you got around this by having your template effectively have an if statement for each different contact method. So you have curly, curly, octothorpe, Twitter, and then your Twitter code, etc. Right. Whereas right. my template had a loop that just had for the identical thing for everything. So I need a little bit more work to make these links clickable. And so the way I decided to deal with it was I decided to use my good friend, the regular expression, to detect when the value of a contact method is a URL. And then if it is a URL, then I'm going to add an extra object into my view called link, which is going to contain a URL and a title. And then I made a new partial to render the ahref equals yada, yada, yada. Oh, there you go. So in order to do this, I need to use something which I've linked the documentation in the show notes, JavaScript's good old-fashioned match function, which takes us... Uh, so you call the match on a string and it takes as an argument a regular expression. 
Um, in this case, I decided that the easiest thing to do would be the regular expression for starts with HTTP, optionally S, followed by the colon, followed by two forward slashes. Um, Makes sense. Won't find it anywhere else. Precisely. So we had to use some parens around the S so that we could say, make this S optional. So question mark means optional. So I just have parens around the S followed by the question mark. The colon is inside square brackets, so it doesn't have any special meaning. So it's called a character class. We're saying exactly the character colon. And then because the forward slash means end of regular expression, they need to be back backslash forward slash. They need to be escaped is what I'm saying. Right. And then the only other special character in there is the hat symbol or the carrot symbol, which means start of string. So in other words, starts with HTTP or HTTPS colon slash slash. And I'm saying that, so then I'm basically saying, you know, val is URL equals contact val dot match that regular expression. I define a new partial called link, which is just ahref becomes equal to the mustache link dot URL target underscore blank. And then the content is link.text. So I just need to add a tiny little bit of code into my view builder to say if there's a URL, stick in the URL, stick in, so link equals new object URL colon contact val text colon contact val. Okay. Um, and so then I can update my uh, template to use the octothorpe link. In other words, if there is a link, print the link. And then my uh, my mustache, not a link, so a hat link. I just don't have a link. So that's my if so else. I, I don't know how you would have done it with your elegant solution to be able to loop through the people, but um, all of mine are links because I know that it's the the set of things that can be ways to contact someone is fairly limited. Yes, it didn't seem smelly to me to say. Hey, this one is going to be Twitter. Therefore, it's going to be twitter.com slash bibu shots yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So I I did hard code them all, but yes, they're all a, links as a result. It's a perfectly valid solution because in this case, you're right, right? If there were to be 200 different contact methods, then it would be a very different problem to what I actually gave you. So it is entirely valid. So, so okay. So I f I solved the problem you're now talking about in my advanced solution. I don't solve it in my basic solution, and I solve it by doing the logic in JavaScript and keeping the template generic. And you solve the problem by keeping the JavaScript simple and having the template do the work. That's not right or wrong. That's just different. Right, but where mine will fall down is mine is hard coded that there's only Allison and Bart, so there's an Allison view, an Al view, and a Bart view. Yeah, okay, but even if and you as were to soon turn as yours, we had two hundred, even if you were to turn Sorry? yours into a loop, your model of having effectively an if statement for Twitter, an if statement for Facebook, an if statement for whatever, which oh, is wouldn't what you've be done, bad. That will still work on oh, a okay. loop, right? Okay. So that okay. part of th that part would work even if you get your code looping. Okay. Good. Okay, so at that stage, we're going to skip over the extra credit. Scroll, 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 so we get to do our new stuff. Ajax. Oh, goody. Asynchronous HTTP requests with JavaScript. That's the backronym Ajax. Okay. Right, because it just had to sound cool. I don't even know where the X comes from now to think about. Sorry, that's, sorry. 
That's not the acronym. The acronym is Asynchronous JavaScript and XML. The XML is there deep, 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 deep under the hood. We never see it as programmers. As Ajax users, we never see the X in Ajax. It just makes it sound like a cool Greek god. Um, (laughs) The backronym. It really is a backronym. What I want to draw your attention to is the word asynchronous and the word JavaScript. So the JavaScript bit's obvious. The asynchronous needs some poking at. So before we talk about asynchronous, how about we talk about synchronous? So synchronous code is code where you go, we execute the first line, nothing else happens until the first line is finished. Then we move on to the next line and we execute that line and nothing else happens until that line finishes. And then we move on to the next line. So it's one, then the other, then the other, nothing happening in parallel. That's synchronous code. And most code is synchronous. Where synchronous really, really breaks down is when you're doing any sort of I.O., especially slow I.O., like, say, talking to another server across the internet or making an Hmm. Ajax request. So you don't want to have to wait for it? Yeah. So imagine if a web app had to stop and wait for a web server to answer before it could do anything else. The whole UI would freeze until the server got back. I mean, the web would be unusable if there wasn't if it was synchronous. So that's why Ajax is asynchronous. So when you when you have a line of code that says make an Ajax request, the line that follows it will happen instantaneously afterwards. But the Ajax will not have finished yet. So you might assume hmm. if you say var x equals the result of an Ajax call, and then on the next line you say console.log x, X will just say undefined. It won't exist yet because that was an asynchronous call. And that will make your noodle hurt the first few times you see it. Because hang on, what is it? On line two, I said, go get X. On line three, I tried to use X. What do you mean X doesn't exist yet? It's like, yep, asynchronous. The X is still busy being fetched while you've gone on to line three. Hmm. That's what it means to be asynchronous. I'm already cranky about that, Bart. I don't think I'm going to like this, but okay. (laughs) If it wasn't like that, the whole internet wouldn't work. Okay, fine. But it's a new way of thinking. And that's why I'm very carefully drawing a line under it and making absolutely sure to say that. So the solution is callbacks. When you make an Ajax request, you don't stick the result into a variable and then use that variable. When you make the Ajax request, you attach a callback which is just a function. In other words, whenever you're finished, whenever that is, if you succeed, run this piece of JavaScript code. And if you fail, run this piece of JavaScript code. Hmm. So you basically set it off and you tell it in advance, if all goes well, do this for me whenever you get around to it. And if things go horribly wrong, do that for me whenever you get around to it. And I am now going to carry on with life on the knowledge that whenever you get around to it, you'll do that thing I said. So that's the way you need to look at a line. So whenever you see $.ajax, you know that it's going to take an arbitrary amount of time to do whatever the two things are you handed for success and failure. And you should always handle success and failure. You know, failure might just be console.log. Oh, dear. But realistically, <laughs> it's probably going to be put up some sort of alert in red using some bootstrap class, you know, probably with the class danger. And say, I'm terribly sorry, but you asked me to do X, Y, or Z, and I couldn't. And on success, you're obviously going to do something because you you made that Ajax request for the purpose of getting a something. So on success... If you don't have a failure, then you don't 
you don't know that it didn't happen. You won't have a notification or... Yeah, you got to let the user know that something's going to be wrong. Even if if you put up a sad face emoticon or something. Because the chances are what you've actually done is you've started a spinner, you've made the Ajax call, and so the first thing in your success handler is replace the spinner with what I actually went and fetched from the server. And the first thing in your error call is going to be replace the spinner with sorry or oopsie daisies or whatever, <laughs> you bad. know, sad face emoticon, something. Right. But always think of it in terms of I dispatch this Ajax call and then I tell it immediately at the point of dispatch, if you succeed, do this for me. If you fail, do that for me. And then it's just off and it will happen. One of those two things will happen, but you don't know when and you can't know when. And when does the the thing that you dispatched find out that what it's supposed to do after it finishes? After the server answers, right? So you're making an HTTP request and one of two things will happen. The browser will time out, which will be the error handler, or the web server will reply. And the web server's reply will have an HTTP code. If that HTTP code is 200 OK, then the success handler will fire. If that response code is an error code, say 500 internal server error, 404 not found, 403 denied, permission denied, 401, you know, any error code comes back from the web server. It's as if a timeout happened that your error callback will get called. And they're the okay. only possible outcomes. Either it times out, okay, I get you. the server's happy or the server's cranky. There are, there, are, there are no other possibilities. Okay. And so you always know that either your success handler will happen or your error handler will happen. And so that's the way you need to think about Ajax calls. At, at the point in time where you create it, you have to already say what to do on success and failure. So go do this. Makes sense. I don't need to keep belaboring the point. So that that is how it works. I also am going to give you a heads up that what I'm describing to you now is the way that it has been for a very long time. And there's a thing that you can say to a JavaScript developer that will make their heads explode. And it's called callback hell. (laughs) This idea of using callbacks is fine for a one-off Ajax request, right? So if I want to use Ajax to fetch the JSON to build my contact cards, well, that's fine. I make one Ajax call. The success handler is call mustache.render with the data you just got. And the failure call is put up some sort of oopsie-daisies, I'm sorry message. But what if you wanted to use an Ajax request to fetch the template and an Ajax request to fetch the data? They both have to finish before you can actually do your thing. That's really hard to do with callbacks. Oh, yeah. So to solve this problem, the, 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 so JavaScript is currently on version 8. Version 8 is on the way this summer. So, la- so version 7 was the last version to be fully released. And version 7 fixed this problem. Callback hell was resolved very recently in, in browser terms with a whole new idea called promises. Hmm. And so we are going to learn about promises, but not yet, because teaching Ajax and promises exactly at the same time is like way too big of a lift. So we're going to spend some time in callback hell. You will then be really well motivated (laughs) to learn about promises. (laughs) You're creating the problem to be solved. Yes, because if I give you the solution, it won't make any sense. 
Okay. The next thing I need to mention to you is the existence of something called the same origin policy. And this has a practical implication for us and some esoteric implementation. Same origin. Same origin. So JavaScript, for security reasons, very, very important security reasons, the browser enforces rules on what Ajax can do. Because otherwise you could basically invade everyone's privacy between tabs and do all sorts of evil stuff. So you don't really want the JavaScript from your from some random ad on Facebook to be able to talk to the JavaScript in the other tab that came from your bank. I sure don't. So the same origin policy enforces rules on what JavaScript can do. And it's all about... So the origin has sort of three parts. What is the URL scheme? So HTTP versus HTTPS, they're considered separate for same origin. The domain name is the absolute most important part of domain origin. So podfeet.com and bartb.ae are considered different origins. Right. But also, https.podfeet.com is a different origin to http.podfeet.com. Oh, really? Yes. And the third thing is that the port number also counts. So podfeet.com on port Mm. 8080 is a different origin to podfeet.com on port 80. Okay. So you've got to bear all of those things in mind. Those three things. If either of those three don't match the different origin. So when you're making an Ajax call... You can't just call any old URL anywhere on planet Earth. You have to call a URL that's on the same scheme, the same port, and the same domain name. Hmm. The one exception is your allowed subdomains. So if your script is running on podfeet.com, it can go to something else, .podfeet.com, because that's a subdomain of podfeet.com. Okay, what about podfeet.com slash something? Slash is fine, because the domain part is the same. Okay, okay. So slash is normal, right? So you might have podfeet.com forward slash my web app calling podfeet.com forward slash my data source. That's Mm, normal. So the the forward slash bit is normal. That's the same origin policy. And that caused an awful, awful lot of trouble as we started to go to the web. But it was really important it exists for security reasons. So we wanted to have our cake and eat it. And a mechanism was invented to allow the owner of a website to say... Browser, you may break the same origin policy when going to this URL on me. And so there's an HTTP hmm. header called control, sorry, access control allow origin. So when someone creates something like, for example, say a web service that serves out random data that we're going to be using as an example on bartb.ie, I had to add a HTTP header into that script we're all going to be using to say I can be used from any origin. So basically, okay. because it, because it's my script, I get to say that the browser is allowed to break the same origin policy. So the user can't break the policy. The supplier can break the policy. Or rather, the supplier hmm. can say, I want to be exempt because I'm supplying. Therefore, I agree to not be bound by this. Okay. Now, the reason I, the real reason I really want to talk about same origin policy is that all modern browsers, for really good security reasons, have another rule. Ajax can never call a URL that starts with file colon slash slash. It has to start with HTTP or HTTPS. In other words, you have to use your MAMP server for this. Yeah. 
so that you can go to http colon slash localhost. You can't just drag and drop the file from the finder into Safari because then the URL will be file colon slash slash and the console will be full of errors going Ajax denied. Oh, okay. That's why I want to belabor the point of the same origin policy. So we're going to going from the origin localhost to localhost or localhost to a script I've written on bartb.ie that I have made available to you, not just to you, to the entirety of planet Earth by putting in the appropriate HTTP header that says this one URL is exempt from same origin policy because I wrote it so I could do that. Okay. So I just just needed to be clear about that because you can't just use Ajax to go to some random URL you feel like. The browser will stop Okay. And it'll write, you'll see it written into the console as a cross-origin error. Could not load script, Mm. cross-origin error. And that's what it's talking about. Okay. Finally. We got a lot of rules. We get to figure out what this is yet? Yes, we do. (laughs) jQuery allows us to make an Ajax request using the function $.ajax. If we want to make an Ajax call, we say $.ajax, and then we pass it one argument. That one argument is an object containing all of the information we want to tell jQuery about the Ajax request we wanted to make for us. So it actually has a lot of options. The full docs are linked in the show notes for everything that Ajax, the jQuery Ajax function can do. It can do an awful, awful lot. But don't worry, I'm going to walk you through the important ones, and they're very, very sensible. And they look okay. like what we talked about last time, because, of course, we're making an HTTP request. So, of course, they're going to contain things like, what method should I use, get or post? What URL should I use? Should I cache this? And what should I do on error? And what should I do on success? Hmm. The other thing to say is that jQuery's $.ajax function returns an object of type jqxhr, which is jQuery's xhr object. So the browser contains a normal xhr object, but jQuery has a fancy one. We are going to come back to that object later. For now, just know that that same object represents both the HTTP request and the HTTP response. So they represent the entire transaction in one object. So you say $.ajax, and it will make an object that represents both the request the browser sent to the server and the answer the browser got from the server. Those are packaged together into one object, which is what is returned by $.ajax. This is feeling super theoretical to me. It I is. Don't worry. I, I haven't got I'm going to, to pull this together. In my and brain the scroll yet. bar you'll okay. notice is quite short. So believe it or not, I'm very close. Well, that's to I'm worried you're going to end and I'm not going to know what Ajax is yet. No, no. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. For a start, Go. I'm going to tell you that there is a file sitting in your zip file called pbs76.html. So that immediately tells you we're going practical here. So okay. if you like, do you want to see it in action or do you want me to describe the code first? Which way around do we want to do this? See it in action because okay. I'm I'm just it's just word salad right okay. now. Okay, so if you open up that um, PBS seventy six, you'll see it says Ajax. Okay. Demo. we have the world's uh-huh. simplest web form. This is a random number generator. What we are going to do is when you click the button generate random number, the JavaScript is going to fire an Ajax query to my server, which is going to generate the random number you asked for and reply to you. And then the success handler is going to show the random number. 
Okay. So, so I've got a minimum, maximum. I got two. I can change what numbers in there, and I hit generate random number, and it said Ajax call succeeded. Status success returned five. Well, you got five too. Oh, I got ten this time. I changed my choice from minimum minimum of four and maximum to six. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, well, it's inclusive, so you could have gotten a four or five or six. I could have, but I was I was rolling that dice. Yeah. Okay. So we did a random number generator. Yes. So what's actually happened there is you've queried my service. So let's actually look at the code for making that AJAX call. Now, I've commented this extremely heavily because basically, instead of writing lots of English, I've written the code with lots of comments to say what's going on. So const my AJAX request becomes equal to $.ajax. And then we start the options object. The first option we give it is URL. And that is the URL of, of that script we're calling. So bartbushas.ie forward slash utils forward slash fakerws forward slash number between. That's the URL. So that that URL is what? That is where the request is going to be sent to. So we're making an HTTP okay. request to the URL. Blah. Okay. The method, the HTTP method for that request is going to be get. So that's our second option, method colon get. We learned about that. Okay, I know that part. Yeah. The next one is a really nice little thing that jQuery gives you. It's a little option called cache, which can be true or false. Um, a lot of times, ISPs like to do secret hidden caching using transparent web proxies, and that can cause you all sorts of weird stuff to happen. So to stop that happening, jQuery has this wonderful tool where if you just say cache colon false... What jQuery will do is it will stick a query parameter onto the end of the URL that is a random number, which means every time mm. you click the button, that random number will be different, so there's nothing to cache because the URL is different every time. Oh. Wonderful that's little trick. That's tricky. Yeah, it's just a brilliant <laughs> little trick. So just say cache colon false, and jQuery automatically sticks in the random number to make the URLs unique every time. It's brilliant. Um. The next thing then, data colon. This is the mechanism for specifying the parameters that are going to be sent as part of the request. So what we learned last time is that you can have query parameters, question mark, name of parameter equals value of parameter and name of parameter equals value parameter and. Yes? Right, right. And we learned that if you do a post request, form data gets sent, which is name of form element equals value, name of form element equals value. But they're this, it's a name-value pair, or it's a name-value pair. So it's there's no actual <laughs> difference between those, really. So jQuery right. doesn't make you choose. It just says, you tell me the name-value pairs, and me, jQuery, will figure out how. So the data option lets you specify the name-value pairs. And so I just say arg1, the value of the text box minimum, arg2, the value of the text box maximum. And, be okay. and because I said method colon get, jQuery will stick to the end of the URL question mark arg1 equals 1 and arg2 equals 10 or whatever you have currently set in the two values. So let me let me stop you for a second on uh, certain words in here have to be exactly what they are. URL has to be URL. Method has to be the word method. Cache has to be the word cache. Data has to be, has the, to word be the word data? Yes. Yeah, so, okay, but when you get down to arg1 and arg2, those are name value pairs, key value pairs, so you can make, those are whatever you want. Those have to be whatever you want to actually send, yeah. So 
inside the you, you're defining a variable at that point precisely so the the, okay. the first level keys are defined by the jQuery Sacred. documentation so the first level key is URL method cache data data type error success okay complete by jQuery not by Ajax no no jQuery the jQuery documentation so jQuery's Ajax function needs you to tell it a URL it needs you to tell it a method Okay, I thought this was AJAX. We're using jQuery to do AJAX for us. So $.AJAX hmm. is jQuery's AJAX method. Okay. But but URL, method, cache, data, those are not J, those are not AJAX terms. Those are jQuery's jQuery? AJAX. So jQuery's AJAX function must be passed a URL, a method, a cache. Okay, so it is in the AJAX documentation within jQuery's documentation. Yeah, exactly right. So not AJAX in the general okay. term AJAX, jQuery's AJAX function. Wait a minute. There's two di- There's two different kinds of AJAX? Well, AJAX is a generic term, right? AJAX is a technique-like function or whatever, right? So the browser can do AJAX using the browser's native JavaScript. It's not nice. jQuery gives us its way of doing... Did not catch that at all, that there's AJAX that's not as part of jQuery. I thought you said, okay. So Ajax is a... New information. Gotcha. Yeah. So just like you can use document.getElementById instead of the dollar function. Mm-hmm. So document.getElementById is the native JavaScript and the dollar function is the jQuery quick and easy way. Okay. There exists native JavaScript Ajax. I have not told you about it and I am not going to because okay. I don't know how to use it because it's ick. Okay, <laughs> that sounds good. I just didn't realize that we were there was two kinds. Okay. Well, yeah. I'm with you now. Yeah. And my show notes actually had me explain that to you, but I obviously accidentally skipped over that bit. Because you're right, I didn't say it. I should have. Okay. I'm always waiting to find out if I missed it or you missed it. One of us did, though. Yes. Okay. Yes, there was definitely skipping going on. So, I'm still winning on that 92 to 1, by the way. <laughs> so, <laughs> so data lets us specify the name value pairs, and jQuery will figure out whether we need to put them at the end of the URL or whether we need to send them as form data, depending on whether you said method colon post or method colon get. So that's why the data attribute is so nice, because jQuery does the work of figuring out how. You just tell jQuery, these are the name value pairs, you figure it out. Hmm. Data type then tells jQuery what it should do with the answer. For now, we, jQuery can, is going to, oh, we're going to always use one of three values, text, HTML, or JSON. And for today, we're going to use text, which just means jQuery, don't mess with the answer. Give me the answer exactly like the server gave it to you. If the server said, you know, it doesn't matter what the server said, give it to me as just plain text. The, if, you, if you're curious, if you say data type HTML, jQuery will take the answer from the server and put it through the dollar function and give you back a jQuery object instead of the raw HTML, hmm. which is okay. often useful. And if you say data type JSON, jQuery will run json.parse for you and give you the result of parsing it as JSON, hmm. saving you okay. a line of code, basically. But for today, let's not complicate things. Dear dear jQuery, give me back exactly what the server said. So data type text. 
So the next thing we get is the first of our callbacks. A callback named error. This callback will get executed whenever, sorry, not when, if there's an error. Let's be positive. If there's an error, (laughs) this is the callback that will get executed. The jQuery documentation says that if you like, you may name three arguments. So the names are up to you, but the first argument will be the jqxhr object. The second argument will be a string of text that is the the um this the, the, the basically the the, the two hundred okay or whatever, uh, which won't be sorry on error it'll be the five hundred one internal server or whatever it is it will be the HTTP response code as a string, and the error text will be whatever the browser says is wrong. So the status text might be empty and the error text might be timeout because there was no answer from the server so the server doesn't have a status text. Or the status text might be 500 internal server error. Or the status text might be 404 page not found. So when it says 501 internal server error, does error text say, hey, we know this is really useful? <laughs> it, it, it may as well, but no. But it, so error text, would be, error text is how the browser talks to you. Status text is how the server talks to you. Okay, so are you saying that that entire line then is all sacred text, error colon, function, J-Q-H-R-O-B-J, comma, status text, comma, error text? No. What I'm telling you is error must be a callback. So it has to be a function. Mm-hmm. It will be given three arguments, which you can choose to name if you plan on using them. And the names you pick ah. can be anything you like, but okay, they will be what I've described. You can name them whatever you like by putting whatever names you want here, but they will okay. be... The, J- the JXQHR object, the text status or the error status. So you could call them okay. booger, snot, and toes. Just wouldn't make very much sense. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So that's why the comment says, first arg is the JQXHR object. Second arg is the HTTP status string. The third arg is an error, and you name them whatever you like. So in this case here, it just says window.alert, Ajax call failed, status, status text with error, error text. So I'll just pop up a little window alert that says why it failed. The next one is then success. That's the other callback that's really important. What to do when everything's A-OK? First argument will be the data. So the server will have answered with something because you sent the server a request. The server will have answered with some content. So that will be passed as the first argument, which I have named data. But the first argument will be the data. The second argument will be the status text, which is almost certainly 200 OK. And the final argument is the JX, JQXHR object. Should you wish to... I, I know you said it before. It's jQuery XHR. I forget. What was that thing? It's the object jQuery uses to represent both the request and the response. I okay. never use them. I generally okay. speaking write my success handler with a single argument, which I call data or D if I'm being, being really lazy. Because I only you care have about to put the three in there. You don't right? have to, right? You don't have to name the ones you don't plan to use. Well, how would it in in your uh, error callback? It it you got to put something for the first argument. The first argument is that uh, that object, right? Okay. Don't if I to want to it? use the first argument, then I got to give it a name. But if my error, how would you not name it? Would you just put a comma there? You just leave it empty. Just open paren, close paren. 
Well, <laughs> I want a status text and an error text. Oh, then you would have. But then I just you have don't to want name the it. first. If, sorry, if, no. If, sorry, if you want any, if you want, if you want the later ones, you have to name the ones that come before it. But if that's you, kind of what I was thinking. So if you didn't give it status text and error text, then what would happen? You said we have to give it something to do when it fails. All right, the function will execute, but those arguments won't have names. But if you don't use them, so what if they don't have names? The function will still run. So if your code in that function was just Windows alert poop, and you didn't use any of the variables, you just it doesn't matter what happened. If the error happens, just say Windows alert poop. Okay. Then you okay. don't need to name the arguments because you're not using them. All you're doing is saying poop. I got you. But you want to do something with the error because you need to know that the error happened. Right, but the, the function will be called whether you use the text or not. Right, but you have to do something inside the function. You have to do something, but you don't have to use the okay. arguments. Gotcha. Okay. And the same is true on success, but I don't know why you would possibly want to, to make a, a call to a server to get some data and then not use the data. So I don't see any right. reason to have a success callback and not use the first argument. That just makes no sense to me. Why ask the server for something and then ignore it? Okay. So in the in the case of success, the third thing is this JQXHR object. Uh, would you leave that out? I would just leave it out. I Normally? need the text status out too because I don't care how you got success. I know you got success. Because I got the data. Yeah. Leave me alone. Let me get to work with this. Okay. Yeah, so in the real world, my code would just say success colon function D. Close parens. Because I'm really lazy. <laughs> and then I just use D. But in this case, I thought it'd be a bit more explicit or someone might call me out on it. <laughs> So in this case, okay. just to prove a point, window.alert, Ajax call succeeded, status, status text, returned data, which looks awfully familiar because when you click the random generator button, it says Ajax call succeeded, status success, returned seven or whatever. So that's how that's happening. Now, you might expect the object to end at this point, but there's one more callback. Complete. This callback always happens if this if the if the request succeeded it's success complete if the if the call failed it's error complete but complete always happens so you can use it to tidy up after yourself hmm why would you need to tidy up after yourself um imagine that you had a button to do something and you wanted to disable the button until you got an answer then you could say before you make the ajax call button.property disabled equals true. And then in your complete function, button.disabled equals false. Because you don't really care how it ended. You just want to turn the button back on. Whether it was success or failure, just always turn the button back on. So otherwise you'd have to copy and paste the button back on code into both success and error. So now you've got a bad smell. Okay. Okay. So you didn't put anything in this function this time. I didn't because I really you couldn't think of anything vaguely sane to do. Interesting. Okay. So you, I was looking for the function. I thought that was it. And I was like, wait, there's nothing in there. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Gotcha. There's nothing in there. Okay. But I see what you're saying. Yeah. So the way it will work is success, will ha success or failure will happen and complete will then happen afterwards. And it's always in that order. So if it succeeded, it's success fully executes and then complete executes. Or error fully executes and then complete executes. But complete will always execute. Which is convenient. Okay. That's it. That, hmm. That's what I wanted to tell you today. 
if you want I tried to, to get a failure, so I made the minimum seven and the maximum six, but it still succeeded. Yeah, I'm afraid to say the faker library is a bit too clever. Uh, if you edit the file and just make the URL be wrong, that'll make an error happen. Okay. <laughs> or if you edit it and put in arg1, replace mintb.val with the string boogers, that should make it error. Hmm. Unless the... I'd have to go through and read the code. Okay. Yeah. My wrong URL should definitely break it, though. <laughs> so my challenge for you is, is I'm hoping not too onerous. So my challenge to get full marks is to update either my sample solution or your sample solution. And you take the template that is currently in the script tag type equals text slash HTML. And you copy the content of that script tag into a text file called context.tpl.txt and you save it to the same folder as your main file. And then delete the script tag. And then update your code so you use Ajax to go fetch your template. I have no idea what you just told us to do. You seem to take the... the, Let me ask a question. Are you saying to tell us, take out the JSON and put it in that TXT file? No, I'm saying take out your template. So in your solution, that is script ID equals TMPL1. Line 117 of your solution. Okay. Huh. So right now, your HTML file contains the JSON your actual code for the current page and the template. I'm saying in the real world, they're not all going to be in one file. So in the real world, your template is usually in a separate file. To be honest, it's usually in a folder called view. where you would have all of your templates in your view folder, but let's not get too carried away. So what you can hmm. take your template and put it in a separate file and then use Ajax to go fetch it. Okay. <laughs> I'm guessing this is either will take me 30 seconds or 26 hours, one or the other. It's going to okay. go one extreme the other. Well, I will give you one more piece of advice then. So... Uh, well, I don't know that you need to. I'm going to give you the light. Why don't you wait okay. until... No, I won't then. Okay. I'll, I won't say you can, you can. You can. Okay. It's up to you, whatever you think. But I'm just... Uh, this might be super easy. Is it? To be honest, it, it actually is. Is the it trivially is, easy? It's one of those things of... You, when the penny drops, it will be trivially easy, but it may take a moment for the penny to to, to fall into place. Okay. My penny's been known to be stuck in molasses, so we'll find out. Now, for a bonus credit, can you also do it for the Ajax? Sorry, can you also do it what for do the JSON What do you mean JSON for file? the Ajax? So can, oh. can you also put the JSON outside and have two Ajax calls? Mm. In other words... Dear Allison, please go and for extra for extra credit, put yourself in callback hell. <laughs> oh, it can thanks. be done because that's how the internet worked for up until twenty seventeen. But I should expect to fail at that part. If not fail, you should expect to be cranky because it's going to make you jump through hoops. There are there are actually okay. many solutions to the problem, but none of them are pleasant. I don't see how we've had enough instruction to know anything to do to cause success or failure in this. We only we only have uh, 34 lines of code, 31 of which are comments yeah. that we've learned today. So I don't know how we would be trying different solutions, but 
Okay, well, for the bonus credit is bonus credit for a reason, right? But the original, if you can get the original working, you'll be in a much better position to even understand the meaning of the bonus credit. Don't don't okay. think about the bonus credit until you have the first one working. Because it's okay. basically do the same thing again and then be a little bit clever so that they happen one after the other. Because hmm. you can't call mustache.render until you have your template and your view and your partials. Yes. So if you're using Ajax to fetch your template and you're using Ajax to fetch your view, then you've got to somehow say don't do anything until both of those callbacks are finished. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. But the first challenge is much, much easier. When you've got the view, sorry, when you've got the template called mustache.render. I got you. So if I got rid of that stupid partial I didn't like anyway, I'd be fine. Well, no, the partial <laughs> is just there, right? The partial gets to stay in your code where it is, so the partial won't cause you trouble. You're just going to have to use the you success s- handler. Hmm. Okay, I thought you just said if you, the reason you're going to have a problem is because the partial and the uh, and the rest of it have to be done in series. Okay, no, yet, no, but how I'm do you know okay, which one's sorry. done? Extra credit is to put the JSON outside. Not leave the partial where it is. So the partial won't be trouble. The reason you'll have trouble the second time is because... Okay, so the, for the first time, you need to have the template and the partial and the JSON. But the JSON stays right where it is and the partial stays right where it is. So they haven't changed. So the only thing that's changed is that you're now using JSON to go fetch the template. Right. That's for your original no extra credit. Right, right, right. For your yeah, extra credit, you meant. for your extra credit, you need to wait. You need to use two AJAX calls to get the data and the template, and you have to coordinate between them. But they could oh, happen in any order. Two, I, see, I see what you're saying, right? Yeah, you got you, they. You don't know which will ha- which will come back first, but you can't do the mm. final render till you have both. Hmm. That's why it's callback hell. There's a dependency between the two independent things. I'm guessing there's a real low chance I'm going to start that part, but we'll see. It yeah, could happen to be if honest, Dorothy the inspires me. The reason I'm putting me. it there is so that you're thinking about the problem I'm going to solve for you as the next installment. Yeah, yeah. And it's it, when you well, see the solution, you're going to go, oh, okay, that's reasonable enough. But I'd like you to be thinking about it. Okay. Well, I'm hoping this is as easy as it sounds, the first one. We shall see. <laughs> we shall see. Let me just go see if I can make a molehill out of this. I, I never know what to expect molehill. because I set, I set challenges that I think are easy and they cause no end of trouble. And then I set challenges where I think of being super evil, twirly mustache. And you go, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> so I never can tell. I've given up predicting. Well, that's good to give two kinds then. Yes. All right. Well, we're off. I am so glad that we did this uh, did this separately. And um, we, Bart obliquely referred to this, but um, if we haven't said it specifically, possibly on Programming by Stealth, is that there is a, a separate channel within the podfee.com slash Slack, mm-hmm. Slack channel, uh, dedicated to Programming by Stealth. And it is, it's probably the hoppingest place in the podfee.com Slack, right? Yes, yeah. Uh, that and the security bits, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Maybe everybody just wants to talk to you. I don't know. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of people jumping in, doing all kinds of creative, fun things in there. So uh, in the uh, in the Slack channel for programming by stealth. So check it out at podfeet.com slash Slack. 
no invitation required, no gates to go through, no jumping. Just go there and jump in and have some fun. Exactly. Okay. All right. Well, I think that winds us up. Uh, well, so I, okay. So the, we're leaving the optional extra credit entirely for people to read then, which is fine. Because it, it's oh, written, I oh. thought that's what we're going to do. Yeah, I think so. If that's okay with you, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely fine with me. Um, it's I, I, it's very detailed in the show notes what I wanted to do and why. It's it's entirely basically it's a more real world as as opposed to a classroom solution. It's an if I was doing this for real solution. Hmm. And it solves the problem that you solved by having what are effectively if statements in your template by having lookup tables in JavaScript. Okay. I'm sure there will be people who are up to that challenge. And then I'm, the only other one my, thing I will My head mention, still hurts from the non-extra credit part. <laughs> the only other thing then that there is, so basically I've broken the extra credit into two distinct pieces because there were two things I wanted to do. I wanted to, make, to, to use my lookup tables so that I have nicer links that are all clickable. So that's half of the extra credit, which uses lookup tables to do what you did in the template. And then the other half is I wanted to, to be a bit more responsive. I wanted my responsive design to when your screen gets wide enough to stop stacking the flex items vertically and to start putting them horizontally and to switch oh. from having tiny little icons to giant big icons. Well, that's fun. So that's more bootstrappy stuff. So extra credit one is your nerdy JavaScript and extra credit two is bootstrap responsive stuff. So if either of those interest you, they're in the show notes with separate headings for each so you can easily jump to the one you care about. And I've tried to write the show notes to be very detailed and very step-by-step. -step, so I think people should just be able to get what they need that way. Yeah, this might be the most work you've done on a, uh, on a post so far. I think it's my third rewrite. Yeah, I was looking... Oh, shoot. Where is... Um, one of my versions I can do... Uh, I was trying to come up with... Look for a, uh, how many... How many uh, words you typed in this? Oh, scroll bar is small. Yeah, it really is. Uh, let's see, let's see. I'm gonna I'm gonna put it in a by word, run a quick word count, and uh, I appreciate how much you work you went into this. Uh, yes, yeah, seven thousand three hundred and fifteen words, Bart. Yikes! I write me some long blog posts. Remember when my blog posts used to be all one giant blog post? Yes, they ran about five thousand. Okay. Maybe seven once in a while. So, yeah, this has a lot of content in it. This should be a a, a book unto itself. Okay, I feel, I feel better now because it took me a while to get this one to come together. So, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. No, and I appreciate the rewrites. All right, Bart, we should probably hang up. Uh, everybody's probably left a while ago. I don't know. You and I are just talking after class now. <laughs> well, anyway, until next time, happy computing. If you learn as much from Bart each week as I do, I'd like you to go over to lets-talk.ie and press one of the buttons over there to help support him. He does 98% of the work here. I'm just the stooge that listens to him and asks the dumb questions. If you go over to lets-talk.ie, you can support him on Patreon, you can donate via PayPal, or you can use one of his referral links. I really hope you'll go over and help him out. In the meantime, you can contact me at Podfeet or check out all of the shows we do over there over at podfeet.com. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.